people always look at companies that get big in the space and they tend to glorify it and in many ways minimize how hard it is to, to build a big brand. And um, having done that at Annie's, I know how hard it is. And so we're going into it with eyes wide open. Here's the question. How do you create a new category? John Forker and his team at Once Upon a Farm have a lot to teach us about that. A few years ago, the fresh baby food category basically didn't exist. But in the last 18 months, the number of stores carrying fresh baby food has increased to nearly 10,000. In this, our second conversation with John, he shares how they're doing it. Thanks for joining Brand New Blueprint, a podcast by Smoketown. I'm your host, Ryan Pintado-Vertner. We're going to learn from visionaries who are building consumer brands in radically new ways. Brands with purpose, brands with new business models. And instead of waiting until their household names were zillions of dollars, we're going to hear from them right now. And who is Smoketown? Smoketown is a brand strategy and design consultancy that helps visionaries build bold, world-changing brands that are grounded in real consumer needs. In other words, we're nerds about this stuff. Here we go. All right, John, thank you so much for joining the podcast for a second time. Uh, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your super busy day to, to share some more thoughts with us. Happy to be here. So what I'd like to do first is bridge back to our last uh, episode and just ask you uh, for a bit of a follow-up. In that session or in that discussion with me, you talked about setting a really bold goal. You wanted to increase access to fresh food in low-income communities by changing the way WIC handles fresh food. Could you share a little bit more about uh, the ambitions there and, what, and the, the progress you guys have been making on that? Sure. So uh, in March, we announced that um, we had developed a line of um, HPP fresh baby food uh, specifically for the WIC program and that we had been approved in several states, um, first West Virginia and Florida, um, and now Connecticut and Vermont. And um, for, those, for those who don't know, WIC is a program for about seven and a half million um, participants in the U.S., generally pre prenatal moms, six months before birth up to about age five, um, kids in the program. And um, it is a really, really important um, nutrition uh, program for um, families in need of, um, of better nutrition and who have really poor access to uh, fresh food and nutrition. And so we always felt that getting... Um, into the WIC side of baby food um, with our points of difference and what we can bring to the category would be a really strong way for us to expand access to healthier baby food for all. And so we're pleased to get started on that journey. We have a long way to go. State uh, approvals happen state by state. And over the next few years, we hope to um, have many, many more states um, authorize us under their state program. Wow. So your team is literally having to go state by state on this. There's not a federal way in, or you guys have concluded that state by state is just the, the best way to do it. Yeah, no, there is no federal way in. It, uh, WIC is a really interesting program. Um, you 
there are federal guidelines for how you have to formulate and your nutrition, and you obviously have to follow those to have a, a WIC compliant formulation. Um, but then you have to go directly to every state WIC board and request approval and submit support and show your pricing in the market. And it's a very complicated, laborious, long process, but um, it's worth it because we think it's a great way for us to reach millions more families, especially ones that that probably wouldn't be able to afford um, our product unless we were in the program. Such an important commitment to take on and uh, just so, so amazed to hear that you guys have have pushed it as far as you have. And, and part of what kind of requires you to, to take that approach is, is something that we're going to talk about for the balance of, of the conversation, which is the fact that you're creating a new category. Part of the reason that WIC and lots of other uh, folks don't, don't really have an established way to work with what you've created is that you're creating the fresh baby food category with Once Upon a Farm. Right. And so one thing I, I would love for you to just kind of share a bit, for those who don't know the brand story and who don't, you know, haven't tracked the baby food category, can you describe a little bit what the baby food category was like before Once Upon a Farm started a couple of years ago and, uh, and how it has evolved since then? Sure. So the baby food category in the U.S., excluding formula, is about a billion and a half a year at retail. And it's it's very much like lots of center store categories. Um, there hasn't been a ton of innovation. Um, consumers have become um, less enamored with the products in these categories because food values have shifted and um, fresh alternatives have expanded. And um, so the category has been kind of flattened down. Um, and so when I came over and joined um, Ari uh, Roz and Cassandra Curtis um, with Jen Garner in about September of 2017, there were around 300 stores in the United States where you could buy fresh baby food. And um, what was amazing is that that exact same time, there was over 18,000 stores where you could buy fresh pet food. And so we looked at that and obviously before coming in here and thinking about the big bet we wanted to make here, I had to ask myself, well, why, why is that? And quite honestly, it's because no one had really gone for it before, like in a big way. And the incumbents in the category hadn't been willing to um, innovate and disrupt their own businesses. And no one had really put together the right set of resources and strategy to go after creating the category here in the U.S. in a big way. And that's what we decided to bite off and go after. What's fascinating to me about that is that the consumer behavior with fresh baby food is so firmly, was so firmly established already. Either, you know, there were millions of moms and dads who were already making their own baby food, or there were millions more who sort of aspired to that, that's been true, my gosh, that's been true for as long as I've been a parent. My, my oldest is 16 years old. So it, right. it is just astounding to me that it took that long. Yeah, when, and most people don't know this, but in 2010, I almost took Annie's, the brand I was running at the time, into the baby food space um, in, a, in a licensed kind of JV deal with a, a big baby food manufacturer. 
out of Europe. And we ended up not doing it for a bunch of reasons. But one of the things I learned um, through doing some consumer research at that time was about a third of parents were trying to make their own baby food um, and were, you know, dissatisfied with choices in the category. So you fast forward to 2017, um, not that long after um, we all came together to get after this mission, we did some research and we found that over 70% of parents um, were doing that. And we think of that, that's a short seven or eight year span. And you just think of the adoption curve there. And so, yeah, it was amazing to me that this category hadn't been done yet. And um, I concur with what she said, like health food trends and um, the, the growth of fresh and just awareness and attitudes about what makes healthy food had, have come so far. The fact that you couldn't buy fresh baby food um, in your local grocery store was just mind numbing. And um, there's reasons for it, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's very difficult to do what we're doing. But the consumer is absolutely ready for it. And we're seeing that in our results as we've been, you know, on this mission here for now about a year and a half. Yeah. You know, I have heard that uh, that statistic before that something around 70% or three quarters of parents are making baby food at home. And I'll be honest that I was kind of skeptical of that number when uh, an entrepreneur shared it with me. It, it, it felt to me like something that happens in quite often in surveys where people project their the best version of themselves when they answer a yeah. question like that. Do, do you For think sure. that, that there's really that depth, that there's that much depth of that behavior? Or, is, or did you take that as a proxy for that's how many people would choose fresh baby food if it were easier to do? Yeah, it's always, uh, it, you're raising a good point about research. It's always difficult to know exactly what those numbers mean. But the way we interpreted it was that, um, you know, around 70% projecting their best self would want to do it. Um, and many of them had tried it. In fact, mo most of those people had at least given it a crack. But we also found in that same research that about 95% of those who tried it uh, quit. And they quit either when their parental leave ended mm. or because it's a real pain in the butt. And right. you have to clean stuff out. And so, yeah, for us, it led us to the logical conclusion of that is if the, if the idea is so compelling, if you can make the idea easy to do and affordable and convenient, they probably had a pretty big business opportunity. So that's how we approached it. Right. And that's where the difficulty of what you're doing comes in. So you, you, you reference the fact that at least one of the reasons this hasn't happened already is that the barriers to doing it are relatively high. Can you say a little bit about what you have seen as those barriers to building a, a viable fresh baby food business through through sort of wholesale retail channels and and, and how you've overcome yep. those? Yeah, well, the, fun, the fundamental um, problem is that there are no refrigerators and baby food aisles. Right. And every time, every time we and other small companies had gone out and spoken to baby food buyers of these big retailers, you know, the baby food buyers are smart. They totally get it. They they love the idea. But then there's the then that collides with the practical reality that there is no refrigeration in the baby food aisle, and to get a retailer to put refrigeration in, 
um, or to just go through that process um, is just complicated and long. And so what we chose to do is we chose to, to build the, the business initially over in the dairy set. And we chose to do that for a few reasons. One is we had a small amount of distribution in dairy that, that was performing really well. And we were trying to understand why. And we looked at consumer behavior. We did some research. We talked to consumers that were shopping the section. And we pretty quickly realized what is really obvious in retrospect is that there's a really strong cross-shop between the conventional baby category and the, the kid yogurt set. Um, there are brands, great brands like Yo Baby have been there for a long time. Um, Stonyfield and others. and so that same mom or dad is generally making a trip to the dairy set and looking at that set uh, at the same in the same shopping experience where they're taking a cruise down the baby aisle. So we knew we we would have some uh, opportunity with shoppers there. We also knew that the yogurt category had grown exponentially in size and in square footage over the seven or eight years prior to us going after this, but that had really leveled off and. Um, the dairy category had a really long tail and lots of underperforming items. And so we thought we could make a pretty compelling case to give uh, Fresh Baby a shot in that section. And, and we were right. And we've, got, we've gotten a lot of opportunity as a result of that. Were you able to use the data from the 300 or so stores uh, or whatever the number of stores was where you already had uh, dairy distribution as proof points as you were building out additional stores and persuading retailers to uh, to cut you guys in? Yeah, to, to some degree. I mean, we were a very small, scrappy company, and so we are building the store as best we could. We decided to go out and do some foundational research to get at the consumer insights behind it, as one of the first things we did, and that goes to the research I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and that's pretty compelling. Pretty compelling research, and um, you know, obviously, um, I had a, I have long experience in the space and have some credibility that I'm bringing to the table. Um, Jen obviously has a lot of power as well, and the products that Ari and Cassandra created are really amazing. So we we had the right combination of stuff at the right time to get a number of retailers to give us a, uh, a shot at it, which is really what needed to happen. And um, ever since then, we've really just been focused on making it work and bigger and better. Right. I have talked with dozens of entrepreneurs who have similarly disruptive ideas, and they almost all run into the challenge of where should I be shelved? Because they're mm-hmm. they're commonly... You know they don't quite fit in one space, a space, and they don't quite fit in another either. They're sort of falling in between, and they often do not actually have access to to data at all. It sounds like mm-hmm. you know one piece of advice you might have for them, and I'm putting words in your mouth, so feel free to correct yeah. me. But one piece of advice you might have from them is if they if they can't get data. If they can't build a database story, they at least need to be able to build a consumer insight-based story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and by definition, you know, when you're trying to do something new that no one's ever done before, and it's 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 really hard. There's, you know, everyone likes to 
to follow what's already been done. You know, there's comfort in that, but but when you are when you're trying to create something new, you know, other than getting a foothold in some small accounts and building the story yourself, there really is no other way. Um, you couldn't go buy, uh, no matter how much money you wanted to spend, the syndicated data story on fresh baby food from Nielsen or IRI right. because the category didn't exist, right? Right. So you had to get to the, you had to kind of sell the dream and also the um, a sell the deep understanding of consumer insights to to retailers for why this is a good thing for them. You know, the the baby category is big and they want to see it grow and they want the category to appeal more to millennial moms and dads who are now really the foundation of uh, people coming into parenthood. And um, this is a way for them to do it. And we just had to make it simple enough for them to give us a shot. And then, and, and then we need to make it, it work and successful uh, once we're in there. How's it working so far? It's working great. We've learned a ton. Um, I wouldn't say it's worked perfectly everywhere. We've learned a lot about um, what it takes to to drive velocities. We've learned a lot about promotional pricing. We've learned a lot about placement, optimal assortment. Um, you know, when you're in a when you're in a startup, you you have assumptions about how things are going to work, and you have to learn and iterate really quickly and um, and position yourself for success. But I'm really really pleased with where we are right now. We've got about 9,000 doors of distribution out there. Our velocities have tripled since we started. Um, and we're really starting to accelerate and, and not only build the brand out in dairy, but also really beginning to build out the brand in uh, the baby aisles as well with uh, a really comprehensive refrigerated uh, program. So it's been a, it's been a crazy um, 18 months, but really excited about where we are. Yeah, awesome. Congrats. One thing you said earlier that Im- implied that the dairy shelving location is is sort of an interim step until you can ultimately persuade retailers to create refrigerated a refrigerated set in baby food. Am I am I uh, reading into that too much, or is that in fact still the long the long game? No, um, you're you're taking one one leap beyond where we're actually trying to go. The, got it. The, because when we came, when we first got here, we said we don't want to build just a baby food brand. We want to build um, a, a fresh kid nutrition brand. And the way we framed that up was uh, babies first foods all the way up through about age twelve. So for us, um, one of the first things that was important for us to do was build out the credibility of the brand against that broader um, aged up audience. And so we introduced smoothies in a pouch almost immediately, launched those at Expo 2018. Those are now among our fastest uh, turning items in a conventional dairy set. And um, so we view the the brand being built across the box. So with a really uh, important segment of the business over in refrigerated dairy um, and and in retailers that are building out refrigerated snacking sections as well, we see ourselves playing there. And then we absolutely see a broader assortment um, of baby-oriented stuff in a refrigerator in the baby aisle. Um, so that's the audacious goal we have. And it is very difficult to do what I just mentioned. It was very difficult to do it at Annie's. It's very difficult to build a brand across the box. Um, but if you can and you can get 
mom or dad into the brand on first foods and then and then be a real partner with that mom and dad as the baby and kids grow and you start solving lunchbox opportunities um, and really filling that white space that exists all the way up through snacking and, and lunchbox. It's a, it's a big opportunity, but it, it's, it's also a, a big audacious one. Right. Let's talk about another challenge that is inherent to creating a category. And that's that you are, teaching consumers the language for that category, even as you create mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. um, you, one of the things that you guys have talked about on, or one of the phrases that you use is cold pressed to describe the product and the experience. I, I've always mm-hmm. been intrigued by that choice. W- why did you choose mm-hmm. that, that phrase? Were there other words or, or articulations that you thought about to kind of quickly get at what the benefit is? Yeah, so we we thought a lot about that question, and we tested a lot of language. And you know, there are some limitations in terms of what you can say. Like you can't say fresh, for example, on the package because we have, even though we are cold pressed and not heat treated, we are um, HPP, which is a um, an FDA approved process. So, um, so there are little limitations on what you can say. Cold press is a term that consumers really understand, and it aligns really closely with our technology, HPP. You know, our product is uh, pressure uh, pressed um, under great pressure, um, you know, multiple times the pressure at the deepest part of the ocean, and um, and you generally at about 40 degrees. And so consumers get the idea that, you know, not heat treating and pressure is um, is a compelling language. And so they like that one. There are other things we could have uh, used as well. But, you know, you see uh, consumers, people talking about like industry language, like HPP, for example. You know, we could have done that. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. Most people are confused by that. Um, so we tried to simplify it down to its core essence. And cold press was a really great way to do that in our category. One thing that you've referenced a, a few different times is that you've done the consumer research necessary to help inform various choices that you've made. And I yep. can imagine that there are some folks in the audience who were thinking, I do, I'm a bootstrapped startup that's just barely, you know, keeping the lights on. I don't think I have the money to do consumer research on on steps like that um do, do you like what would you if you had an entrepreneur come to you and sort of and issue that concern or that complaint in a way like what what feedback do you have for for entrepreneurs who are who are you know feeling like they can't afford the consumer research um i would say um go talk to somebody who's done a lot of consumer research either if somebody if you have somebody on your team if you don't have somebody on your team talk to somebody like you um, who's done a lot of consumer research, there are tons of really scrappy ways yeah. um, to get consumer feedback. You know, obviously online survey is a great one. Focus groups are a great one. You just need people who understand um, how to phrase the questions right, how to, uh, you know, what are you trying to learn um, and do it. But you can get great consumer research for several thousand bucks just doing the right, um, you know, talking to the right people and you know doing a an online survey and it can 
it, it's not the same thing as spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on consumer research in terms of its, you know, um, reliability, but you can get a lot of the learning for a fraction of the money. And I just think that it's one of the, it's one of the great opportunities um, that small young companies have is to actually show that they are really dialed into what consumers want um, and to bring those stories uh, to retailers that often, oftentimes big, big competitors in the categories are not really doing. And uh, so it's a great opportunity if you think about it that way. Right. And you make a really interesting point uh, there on that latter piece, which was a competitive advantage that I'm guessing you had as you entered this market because the big established players were not willing to disrupt themselves. They probably had not done the consumer work to recognize how big and important fresh baby would be, which allowed you to not only bring the sell-in story, but I'm guessing it probably positioned once upon a farm as a bit of a thought leader in the, you know, first food space in general, right? Yeah. Well, I think anytime that you position your business to be the first at something and you actually go do it, you have, you know, you automatically gain um, the reputation as a real leader and somebody who's willing to challenge the status quo that comes with that. You know, I, I think um, there's a lot of really smart people in big CPG companies and the existing um, incumbents and baby are no different. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're well aware that the consumer trends have been going in this direction, but there's that oftentimes runs um, into the reality of, you know, a brand manager may want to do it, but it runs into the a business planning cycle or other, you know, m- many other reasons that um, innovation doesn't happen in bigger, more bureaucratic organizations. And so I think, um, I think they probably should have done it, but may- maybe allowing us to establish the category will make it clearer for, for them and others uh, that the opportunity is real here. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I remember from our last conversation is that you you talked about wanting to establish category leadership in fresh baby food as quickly as you could. Uh, and And by category leadership, I interpreted that to mean you wanted to quickly be the share leader and the clear driver of growth across the you know across the retail landscape am i getting that right yeah absolutely and and that is an actually a really interesting strategy choice that that i i see other you know disruptive you know equally disruptive brands not necessarily make what 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 was it that led you guys to decide that you weren't just going to do this in a small way but you were going to you know be pedal to the metal and and drive this as quickly as you could well, there's, yeah, there's a number of reasons for that. One is that the, back to the conversation we had earlier about the just compelling consumer need and how right. overwhelmingly obvious that is. Um, it really is amazingly obvious when you talk to consumers that they love this idea. Um, the challenge comes in executing it. And so, you know, when you think about um, how you, you know, launch a brand and scale it, the the most common and mostly right um, description of how to do it is to, you know, small scale, start, test, iterate somewhere, learn, 
um, and then expand and build um, over time. And I think we could have done that. I think the the risks to me were greater doing that than taking the approach we've taken because um, I do believe that um, there's a significant advantage to being first and best and biggest and um, the the risks of that are expanding you know too broadly too fast not having the concept you know completely figured out as I alluded to earlier um, but I felt like we had um, the right team the right brand the right set of assets and strong investors to go after that 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 could help mitigate that risk but it's not a strategy that I would broadly recommend for every startup, for sure. Um, it's kind of a swing to the fence type of mentality, but I think there's an, you know, we have, we have an unfair advantage in some of the resources and assets that we have. I'm not talking about just money. I'm talking about experience and depth of understanding about how to go about this. And I think that mitigates the risk for us to do this versus somebody else. Right. So it really, it, it, that's actually, that's a great point because it's not just about being able to quickly raise significant amounts of capital. It's that the team, your own, you know, domain expertise, et cetera, all of that combined with the consumer insights made it the right strategic choice for once upon a farm, but given a different combination of circumstances that may not actually have been the right way to go. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and look, we're, you know, 18 months into the journey since I came over here with Jen and it's been going really well, but you know, the the time to make a clear call on that will be probably 5 years from now when we're all looking in the rearview mirror, right? <laughs> so <laughs> um, um but I think uh I feel very comfortable with the choices we've made so far. Um and um yeah, it's been it's been going great, but we have a a ton of work to do too. I mean, it's never, you know, people always look at companies that get big in the space and they tend to glorify it and, and in many ways minimize how hard it is to, to build a big brand. And um, having done that at Annie's, I know how hard it is. And so we're going into it with eyes wide open and, um, and a real, you know, respect for the work you have to do to make sure you do it right and to build a really strong business model and brand that people are going to trust over generations hopefully um that they'll that'll create a lot of value hopefully for everybody if you were to compare the rate of growth and i don't just mean revenue growth i mean maybe you know growth of the team in particular if you were to compare the rate of growth in your early years at annie's with the mm -hmm. rate of growth at once upon a farm is once upon is once upon a farm growing more aggressively than what you had experienced in that first at bat in your career. Oh, absolutely. Oh, just, it's not even close. It's um, not even close. At, oh, it's not even close at, at, at Annie's. Um, if you were to go back and look at, I got involved in that business in about 1999 and it was a five or $6 million business at that time, but it had been around for 10 years. Um, and they had, so, you know, from, from starting up, they'd put up really good growth percentages to get to that point. But, you know, from kind of 1999 up through when I left, um, or I should say a good, a good marker would be the IPO in 2012, we typically grew like 
20 to 30% a year. And um, I was kind of, people in my company used to joke about it because, you know, we would go through the push and pull of setting the plan number for the year. And it would generally be an argument over the range between 10 and 30% because right. um, I just felt that that was 20% was kind of a really good sustainable number that we could grow at. We could be pretty predictable. We could execute well. Um, we were funded um, in a way because we had good capital partners to be able to allow that growth, but not overextend ourselves. What's changed is um, the consumer consumers are just in a totally different place now. And back then, it was really hard to grow um, a business, you know, a lot faster than that because there was really nowhere for the stuff to go. I mean, in the early 2000s, I mean, you could sell into the you know, the, the early pieces that became all of Whole Foods, you could sell into the independent natural foods retailers and a few grocery retailers were put, were carrying national organic products, but it was nowhere near what it is today. And so if you compare the experience at Annie's, it was slow measured over a long period of time. Um, but I don't think you could build Annie's the way we built it then, um, now because, Competition comes so much faster. There's so much better capabilities out in the space. There's a lot more capital. So what we've had to do here is compress everything we did at Andy's over a decade into a couple of years. And so it's been geometric growth and it's going to continue to be really fast growth, which is exciting, but also a lot more challenging to manage from the supply chain through consumer, you know, just basically every touch point you have to be that much better and execute that at that much higher of a level because there are so many moving pieces in a fast growing business. And just to tie back to the last conversation that we had in, in the first part of this, uh, of this podcast, you talked about how important it was that at once upon a farm, you established the organization's values early. It was like the first thing that, that yep. you and the team did. And that part of the reason yep. you did that was you anticipated how fast you were going to have to grow and specifically how fast the organization itself was going to have to grow. And it's hard yep. to grow that fast in general, but it's even more difficult to grow that fast if there's not a f- solid values foundation for, for, for folks to jump into. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we didn't have the luxury of time to be figuring out what our culture and values were going to be over a long period of time. We had to um, uh, define, really clearly define them together at the beginning and, um, and, to just, and then just build and strengthen them as we went along. And, you know, I have the, having the benefit of having done that once before and making some mistakes about how fast they did that or didn't do that. Um, you know, it was really good learning. And we, a lot of the folks that came over here uh, to help me grow this business um, when I joined, I had worked with for a long period of time in Annie's and they had a really, really solid understanding of that as well. So everyone trusted each other and we were able to really pull that part together quickly. Well, John, with that, I want to thank you for joining the show again. I, I really do appreciate it. I know that uh, the folks in the audience, especially the entrepreneurs that are out there, you know, scrapping it together every day, trying to, you know, be disruptive and create new categories are going to take not just inspiration from this conversation, but some really concrete advice that they can that they can go act on as soon as they quit listening. So I really appreciate you being willing to spend the time. Great. Thanks, Ryan. It's my pleasure to be on here. It was a real honor and um, best of luck to everybody who's listening on Growing Your Businesses. 
Thank you for listening to Brand New Blueprint. If you liked this episode, please give us a positive rating. This podcast is a production of Smoketown. Huge thanks to Lisa, our producer, and to the regulars for the beats. If you have suggestions, feedback, hit us up in the comments, and be sure to check out our next episode.